What's going on gym bros and gym girls? My name is James and welcome to episode 14 of Gym Bro Talks. Today we got a really special guest on the show and you've definitely seen his name around. You probably even tagged his name in other people's videos. This man is saving lives every single day and he's writing a book and he's trying to spread as much content and as much education as he can around all the social media platforms as he can. So without further ado, we have Dr. Ids. How are you doing today? All good. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Um, it's nice to, it's nice to be wanted to be a guest on on various podcasts. So, I uh, honestly appreciate it. Yeah, thank you again for taking the time to come on to the show. And I think with the knowledge you have and the amount of people that you've helped, you're definitely going to be invited to many many podcasts. And I'm I'm so grateful for you to uh, to be on the podcast here. So I I, I want to get started right into the juicy topics that we discussed er- earlier uh, in messages. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first one being like visceral fat, right? Because when I look on TikTok and the stuff I've learned, um, and I just, and I see your videos, I'm like, what I learned isn't actually true, true. So, you know, like, like stuff like, you know, you can't spot reduce fat or stuff like you can't, you, you don't have to do cardio to burn fat. Um, you have to be in a caloric deficit to burn fat. All of those were, um, things that I believe to be very true. And I think a lot of people believe to be true, especially quote unquote, uh, fitness influencers, experts and, and stuff like that. Uh, and so I noticed that you said well, with the visceral fat is that when you do cardio, you can actually burn visceral fat, whether or not you are in a calorie deficit or not. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes. Yeah, so that's a very, that's a very um, niche and specific topic, right? It's not, it's not something that is commonly talked about because I think, quite frankly, it's not a very well-understood topic. And, you know, the more I go into it, the more I realize that it is super complicated. We, we're starting to know now in the medical field that, you know, visceral adipose tissue or intra-abdominal adipose tissue, so often in the literature you'll see it referred to as VAT or IAAT, Right. So this type of fat tissue and these fat depots, they are essentially acting as as a separate organ. They they have functionalities that resemble like any other organ. So in in a way, you know, they influence hormones. um, They release, you know, inflammatory cytokines, different types of chemical mediators, right? And they can affect different organ functionality. So in one way, you know, the fat you have under your arm, and the fat you've got on your chest and the fat you've got on your legs and your bum, right? So that type of fat is is typically referred to as subcutaneous fat, mm. okay? And even though it does have metabolic properties, it's not as um, influ- influential in our health as mm. visceral adipose tissue is. That's, that's the first thing I, w- I, w- I would like to say. The next thing that I think is key to... Um, establish and to make sure we are specific with our definitions, right? I think the key point is, is that when when I say that, you know, different things and exercise can burn visceral fat, quote-unquote burn visceral fat, right? I'm only saying burn because, you know, it's easy to understand for the, for the lay I person, see. right? So when I say burn, what I'm meaning is, is that different things such as exercise can influence the fat partitioning in our body. So what that means is it acts as almost a redistribution of fat stores around the body. So, you know, there's been plenty of control studies. I think some of the main meta-analyses by Chang et al. in last year, and you've got um, Alice Belicha et al. who looked at, you know, I think 12 systematic reviews and meta-analyses covering over 140 control studies, right? So there is a lot of evidence out there, and I'll try and summarize what's what's going on. So when I say that there's a redistribution, what's happening is that we can almost, you know, target our visceral adipose tissue in the way that we can cause lipolysis and breakdown of that tissue, and then that can then be de- that can be redistributed and stored elsewhere in the body to less harmful areas, right? So when I say burn, well, 
you know, it's it's technically not burning because we're not losing total fat. We're not we're not losing weight. So if you if you want to lose weight over a consistent period of time, then you have to be in a calorie deficit. No one, you know, you can't argue against the laws of thermodynamics, right? So what I'm what I'm suggesting in a very relatively simple manner is that things like cardiovascular exercise, and we can talk about what you know what I actually mean by that. Um, they have an influential role on our belly, our deep stomach and deep belly fat, independent of how many calories you're having, right? So even if, if you take two people and, um, you know, you're eating the same amount and one person does, you know, four times a week of cardiovascular exercise and they make up those calories by eating more calories afterwards, okay? Mm -hmm. Two people after a few months one that does cardiovascular exercise, one that doesn't do any cardiovascular exercise, even if they're staying the same weight, so they're not in a calorie deficit, the one doing cardiovascular exercise will have reduced the level of intra-abdominal adipose tissue compared to the other person who hasn't done any cardiovascular exercise. So what's happened is that they've, they've broken down some of their fat tissue in the gut and it's gone and been distributed elsewhere in the body. Right? So, so in my series called How to Lose Stomach Fat, that's a very, obviously I'm doing that just so the average person can understand. But we need to start being a bit more specific. And in the longer formats like this, I like to go into a bit more of the finer detail, right? Yeah, I, I, I understand because like when, when, you know, a lot of content creators are making TikToks, they try to make it a little bit shorter and you don't get the full picture covered then the people will comment and, and I understand what's going on there. So uh, what I want to ask is, uh, in regards to visceral fat, when you say like redistribution, does that mean you're redistributing the visceral fat into maybe there's more different types of fats, but is it going into your subcutaneous fat? Yeah, so it's very, yes. So it is very possible because in, in control studies, what we see is we see that although the total fat mass does not differ, across the entire body, right? Whether that's from MRI scanning or CT scanning or, you know, DEXA scanning. These are high-grade medical scanners, right? So they're, they're like the most accurate things we have to calculate mm -hmm. body fat across the body. So what, what, what we see is when people do these interventions, um, you have a reduction in visceral adipose tissue store, but you don't have any change in total fat mass. Mm. So if you have a reduction in one type of fat but then the total amount of fat stays the same, what does that tell you about what's happened to this? Obviously, by definition, that has to have gone somewhere else mm -hmm. because your total amount of fat has stayed the same, right? Yeah. So there are these mechanisms in place which I don't know how deep you want to go into, but there are, you know, there are very intricate and complicated mechanisms by which exercise can moderate visceral fat levels. And for, for example, if I just briefly touch on one, just to, just to give you an idea, there was a very interesting um, randomized control trial in 2019 that looked at uh, obese individuals and they prescribed them a cycling or exercise regime. I think it was 12 weeks, I'm not sure. And what they did was they gave one group a specific type of biologic drug. So it's a medication. And that was called, I think it was tocilizumab. And that's a type of um, it's 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 a type of anti-inflammatory biologic drug that acts on something called interleukin six. Interleukin six is one of our chemical mediators that influences inflammation in the body, right? So the consensus is that it's a pro-inflammatory mediator, but it also has anti-inflammatory properties as well. And the reason why this is interesting because in the group where you give the medication to, yeah which targets IL-6, and they then went and did the exercise, compared to the group that never had the drug, but they just did the exercise themselves, the group that just did the exercise lost more visceral fat tissue mm. compared to the group that had the drug and did the same exercise. So what that shows us is that interleukin-6 and the chemical pathways in our body play a role in how visceral fat is stored inside the gut. So we know that exercise mediates and it influences in inflammatory markers in the body. 
So when you give that group the drug, for some reason, there's something going on at a cellular level that is preventing visceral fat being broken down. So we, we are now starting to understand that the inflammatory chemical pathways in the body, that is one of the mechanisms via which exercise can reduce visceral fat levels independent of you know being in a calorie surplus or being in a calorie deficit. So that's just one of the proposed mechanisms. And there are others to do with insulin sensitivity and you know our fight or flight response where um, visceral fat tissue is is known to be more sensitive to sympathetic activation. Mm -hmm. So when we activate our sympathetic nervous system, right, um, through things like cardiovascular exercise, the actual fat cells are known to be more responsive to that. So you'll get a preferential loss of fat from the abdomen rather than anywhere else. So obviously, like, this is very, very complicated, and it's, it's super complicated endocrinology, you know, specialist medicine topic. So they're, they're just some of the the finer detail behind why things are happening inside the gut and why it's being moved elsewhere. Mm. You see, I, I, I wanted to be a nutritionist. Um, mm. So for me, it was between nutritionist or business school. And then I ended up choosing business school because because chemistry and and uh, biology and, and all of that jazz but uh you know I'm, I'm i'm still learning quite a bit now especially from experts like yourself so um i wanted to there's ask nothing, uh, there's nothing stopping you from uh doing some high level qualifications maybe some quite prestigious you know online nutrition courses you can you can get certified now it's not you know it's not too late that's true. Yes. Yeah. I should look into it. I, I did. Uh, I did a course called Precision Nutrition, yeah. um, which, you know, it, it was, it was a, good, a good, I guess, uh, a nutrition course for like personal trainers that want to help mm. their clients get to their goals. But it's not it's not so much. Uh, it doesn't dive in, in, in so much detail. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely want to want to try and up my level of nutrition for sure, because it's it's so important and and, uh, and it's so complicated and complex as well. Uh, yes. I do want to. I do want to ask. With in in terms of burning visceral fat and burning fat as a whole, is it easier? Because when you're in a deficit, obviously you lose visceral fat and subcutaneous fat. Yeah. Right. And so when when is it easier to just burn everything off or tra and or redistribute that visceral fat first and then burn your subcutaneous? It's 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 like what is like the fastest route or is it too complex? Sure. No, no, sure. So it's it's a good question, but it's multifaceted. So if we try and break it down just a little bit, so I'm sure you've seen, right, walking around, have you seen people that are very thin on their limbs, very thin on their torso, very thin legs, but they've got a massive gut? Yes, beer bellies. Right. Yes. So these are what we call, you know, pot belly or beer bellies or whatever, right? So these are people that have tremendous amounts of visceral fat that is making their belly stick very, very far out and wide, right? But yes. they haven't got much fat anywhere else. So what's going on, right? So we know that losing weight, even though you will lose some visceral fat, if you have a large gut, which many people in the Western world do now, because of our dietary habits, because of alcohol intake, because of things that influence visceral fat independent of calories, right? If there wasn't an independent effect on visceral fat, then why do we have dispro disproportionate big bellies? Surely everything should come off in the same proportion, mm. right? No, people think way too simply. People think, ah, oh, you know, every coach online or unless they've listened to what I had to say or what, unless they have a high level, whatever, medical qualification or something, they will say, if you want to lose your belly, you need to just be in a calorie deficit. Mm. Okay, sure, yes, you will lose some. But if you want to preferentially lose visceral fat because you've got a disproportionately large belly, then you do need to be a bit more tailored and a bit more specific in how you advise people and clients, right? Mm. So, so, that's, so that's the first thing. So even when you're losing total weight and total fat, the proportion of how much visceral fat you are losing depends on how you live your life and the, the diet you're having and the exercise regime you're putting in place, Okay. So that's the first thing. So now the next thing is, you know, what's the easiest way? Well, I would always recommend, you know, the quickest way to lose visceral fat would be to be in a calorie deficit, but to also engage in habits that 
lose visceral fat independent of calories as well. So some of those things will be, you know, cardiovascular exercise. And that's why when you go to the gym and look at people, generally speaking, that just solely do resistance training. Yeah. yeah. A lot of them will be very strong, very muscular, but they've got large bellies. Yeah. <laughs> when, and then, uh, I can even see it in myself. I haven't done, I, I haven't done any cardiovascular exercise for a good, for a good, maybe five, six months because of everything going on at work and all these other things going on. And I've noticed that my weight has stayed exactly the same. I've been 75, 74 kilograms for years. Right. But why is my belly slowly coming out? Oh, maybe it's because my lifestyle habits have changed. I've not gained or lost any weight, but I'm doing things that are preferentially storing visceral fat and not storing other kinds of fat, mm -hmm. right? So when you want to lose visceral fat, you have to be tailored. You have to be a bit more specific and a bit more knowledgeable as to what we can do to really focus on that area. So cardiovascular exercise is a big one, you know, reducing calories from refined carbohydrate, refined sugary sources. There was a very interesting study, I think, in 2012 that gave um, four groups of people four different drinks for six months, right? Mm. One group had a highly refined sugary drink. The other group had a sugar-free drink, um, so they had zero, zero calories. The other group had milk and the other group had water or something, right? Um the group that had the sugary drink, so the high refined sugar group, after a few months, they never gained any additional fat. But what happened is their visceral fat levels went up by 30%. Hmm. Right? So that's showing you that it's not all about weight loss and weight gain. Things that you do and the things that we, you know, participate in on a day to day basis, that can change our visceral fat levels. So to summarize all of this coming down now back into one final point, losing weight is a very effective way to lose visceral fat, yes. But to go into the finer detail, if you want to preferentially lose visceral fat, then you have to do additional strategies that include things like cardiovascular exercise, reducing refined sugar intake, working on our cortisol and stress levels, because glucocorticoids like cortisol can also redistribute fat stores as well. And things like there's an interesting study recently this year looking at sleep and how um, not having good enough sleep can affect different hormone levels and how that can affect visceral fat levels as well. So there are many there are many methods that we can you know engage with that would help visceral fat stores as well. Yeah, you know I noticed when uh, for the last I guess few months I was I was in like a little bit of a bulk hmm. and I uh, reached I'm five seven but I reached about two hundred pounds. Um, and I'm, new, I'm new, doing a cut now, so I'm back at 175. Um, everything went down, but my belly is still huge. And I think the reason is that because I haven't, I haven't done any cardio for the past maybe like two, three years. So yes. I got to get that going. I noticed, you know, and that was you posted the other day of you doing deadlifts. I'm like, holy shit! Like Doctor Ids is freaking jacked. <laughs> you don't, you don't expect that, right? Like on TikTok, you see, you see a doctor. You got the stethoscope. You got your, you know, yeah. outfit on, and it's just like the upper portion of your, of your <laughs> head. So people don't expect it. And I'm like, oh my goodness. That's insane. Yeah, the thing is, the thing <laughs> is, uh, what you've noticed probably with my content and a lot of other people have is I don't like to put anything personal about my life on there. You know, no, I don't even put my real name on there, right? right. I don't yeah. put anything about what I do in my day-to-day -day life, like, oh, a day in the life of a doctor or whatever. And mm. the yeah. reason why I do that is because I want you to listen to the my words and my evidence independent of what I can lift, how how big I am, you know, what I do in my day-to-day -day life, how I treat oh, yeah. patients. I really try to remain objective because we see a lot, especially, and I know you will know this as well, yes. especially in the fitness community, yeah, even including lots of people that you've also interviewed and had, had on the podcast as well. People will believe them purely because of how they look, right? Because mm. they're posing okay. in the mirror, because they're doing a double bicep flex, because they're showing how they can lift 140 bench press or whatever, yeah? I don't want any of that influence. Even though I'm not very big, I'm not very strong compared to many people, I know I do have strength and I, and I have worked out consistently in the past. I'm not working out anymore, but the point is I have done and I have gotten to a point where I can lift about three times my body weight, right? Mm -hmm. 
Whereas I don't want that to influence what people are listening to my words and how they're engaging in my information. That's why we are at the wall where I do my videos anyway. I do my videos here, yeah? Mm. From mm. my background and what you see around me, you can't understand anything in my life. The mm. only thing mm. you have that I'm offering you is my words, my evidence, and my knowledge, mm. right? So if you're the type of person that thinks objectively, then you will realize that how someone looks and what they do in their life does not make the slightest bit of difference as in relation to the information they are providing for the public. So that's what I try to do, and I, and I, I try to stick to that. But, you know, I want people to objectively assess what it is I'm saying and not look at any other factors. But occasionally, I have a couple of times given in to the bait. You know, people have baited me saying, oh, oh why would I listen to a doctor that doesn't lift? And I'm just thinking, just because, <laughs> I, haven't, just because I haven't shown you me lifting, why does that mean I don't lift? Yeah. And also... Even if I didn't lift, what's that got to do with the information I'm telling you? Mm -hmm. it's, got mm -hmm. nothing, it's got nothing to do with it. Because if you look at the hierarchy of evidence, anecdotes and personal experience is not even on the list. It's below <laughs> animal studies. You know, when someone yeah, cites yeah, a rodent yeah. study, it's what you say happened to you is even lower than that. So, <laughs> so why would I talk about my own anecdotes? I don't do that. <laughs> That's, man, like, because I understand what you're saying because a lot of these quote-unquote experts fitness influencers they'll look again they'll look a certain way but then they'll talk about uh you know because the, the information you've provided today is not something that everybody knows um and so it's it's just this is why i really want to you know spread your information because i think it's so valuable um and i want to try and create create a, 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 a more knowledgeable environment on, on TikTok and other social media platforms because there's so much clutter on there. Um, yeah. But yeah, thanks again. Um, I want to move on uh, to the next uh, topic, if that's, uh, that's okay with you. Cool. So I want to look now into artificial sweeteners. You got stuff like your sucralose, aspartame, um, and different sweeteners and what I want to ask I think the biggest curiosity in this topic for me is do they have any side effects um, because you get people saying like oh you know your body will react to it the same way it reacts to sugar um, or it's bad for your guts or it causes cancer and I know you debunked these uh, with a bunch of videos already uh, but i think it's also very important to know so if you could kind of go into it a little bit more as well yeah so sweeteners oh boy you know, <laughs> i think um every month every four six weeks i have to put out another video about sweeteners because it just seems like the misinformation just does not stop mm. you know i think people have been so ingrained into believing they are poisonous they're cancerous you know you're I've even heard people say that you're better off having the full sugar version than you are yes, literally to have, to have sweeteners, right? And like, <laughs> the logic just isn't logicking in my head, you know? <laughs> so there, so there, are many, there are many facets to this, to this um, discussion. I think firstly, I just want to say that artificial sweeteners as a general you know, umbrella term there are loads of different types of sweeteners and we do not have the time to go into, you know, I've only, honestly speaking, I've only looked into probably four of them in refined detail. I can't tell you the evidence base for many of the others because I haven't had the time to go into them. Um, but regarding, you know, aspartame and sucralose, you know, aspartame is probably the sweetener, the low energy sweetener that has gotten the most hype and the most controversy and the most discussion between different studies and different professionals, right? And I want to say off the bat that there, there is no established harmful effects of aspartame on human health, okay? And when I say established, I mean we have to be very specific here. Mm. I'm not saying that there haven't been documented associations between aspartame and, you know, worsening uh, cognitive function. There's perhaps some associations between you know, childhood ADHD and different types of neuro, um, 
neurological disorders and things like, you know, anxiety. There's even been a, a bit of evidence looking at low mood and artificial sweetness as well. And I've even, I even covered that in one of my videos briefly. Yep. But you have to understand that the, the quality of evidence is just not there to say that aspartame or sweeteners cause any of these issues, right? They are interesting avenues of research that will be ongoing now for the next couple of decades. And in the future, we might see a, perhaps a stronger link or a stronger line of converging evidence that shows that perhaps, you know, a couple of the sweeteners might negatively impact our mood or they might do something, right? But I can say with confidence that the evidence we have available does not show that aspartame or low energy sweeteners cause cancer, increase your risk of cancer. They don't cause insulin resistance. They don't increase our glucose or insulin levels. Yeah. What I will say is that the brain does have a mechanism in place that when it tastes something sweet, we, we have something called a cephalic or a cephalic insulin response, right? Where it's a tiny bit of insulin in preparation for something sweet to enter the body, right? Mm. But once it realizes that there's no glucose entering the bloodstream, yeah, that initial reaction will just stop straight away. Mm. So there was a very interesting uh, meta-analysis, I think, in 2020 by Grayling et al., um, Arno Grayling, you actually analyzed all of the control studies, I think 26 or so, on the effects of our low energy sweeteners and their glucose and insulinemic responses, right? The total area under the curve, looking at the release of insulin and looking at the release of glucose, shows that there's no difference, there's no actual net increase, and the sweeteners do not have an, ins an insulogenic or a, um, a glucose uh, differing response, right? So I don't think that's something we have to worry about. And, you know, people will often criticize the study and talk about funding, and that's a whole other issue down the line. But generally speaking, when you've got a couple dozens or more of randomized control trials coming to the consensus that sweeteners don't increase insulin levels, then you can be confident that that's what the evidence shows, mm. right? So that's about the glucose issue. The cancer issue... Uh, it's just a stupid one because, oh. yeah, when you when you inject, you know, rats with 500 times the dose that is found in the human diet directly into the eyeball, then yeah, of course you're going to cause cancer, right? But that's not that that isn't what we're doing here. You know, you're having a very very tiny amount every day. Yeah, you could hypothesize that it would take, you know, a couple dozens of cans of Coke with high levels of aspartame you know, for a couple dozens uh, of years or a couple decades for you to have any increased risk of anything. I but see. no one does that, right? I so see. no one, no one, no one, no one does that in, in real terms. So to summarize what's going on, essentially, you know, I like to discuss artificial sweeteners because in the Western world, I think it's estimated that around 15 to 20% of our total energy intake comes from sugar-sweetened beverages and highly refined carbohydrate sources, right? So imagine if everyone in the West replaced those sugary drinks with low-energy sweeteners, yeah? You can see the massive difference in obesity levels, metabolic syndrome, uh, fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease risk, right? So... The reason why I talk about it a lot, I'm not saying because it's better than water. What I'm saying is for people that like myself, you know, what's in this? This is low energy squash right here. I, I literally, I love the taste so much that this encourages me to drink lots of water. Right. If I never, if I never flavored this drink, I wouldn't drink as much water because I don't, right. I don't I'm not really a fan of water, right? But things like this and encouraging people to enjoy what they're drinking for no calories and for no documented harmful effects is a very, very positive thing because it helps you curb the desire for highly refined sugary drinks, you know, for, you know, empty calories, we call it, right? And I want to briefly just mention this, uh, this new meta-analysis, I think, of 17 studies that was released this year recently that actually compared what happens when you take people that drink sugary drinks 
and you either replace it with sweetened, artificially sweetened drinks or water, right? And what happened is because of the things that we've talked about, such as, you know, people actually liking these drinks, what happened was the people that went from the sugar to the artificial sugar, they had better improvements in health markers compared to those that went from the sugar to the water. And that's likely because people that went from the sugar to the water, they were craving that I, I need something sweet in my life. Like, you know, what can I do? Right. So they were perhaps compensating by having more mm. cookies, biscuits, chocolate, sweets. Right. So obviously the improvement in health is not going to be as great as if you went from sugar to artificial sugar, where you're curbing your appetite, you're curbing your cravings for the hyper palatable foods. And what we saw was, I can't remember the exact biomarkers now, but I think there was an improvement in blood lipids. There was an improvement in fasting glucose, insulin levels, and body weight. Body weight and body fat. Yeah? So when I did mm. a video on that a couple months, uh, I think about a month or so ago, um, people were like, oh my God, Dr. Ids is saying that, you know, aspartame is better than water. No, you're not listening to what I'm saying. This is where people take one of my sentences and they pull it right. out of context, right? What I'm saying is, if you're someone that likes sugary drinks, going to artificially sweetened drinks might be a very good tactic to improve your health. Right. Purely right. because it will encourage you to reduce your total calorie consumption, your total refined sugar consumption, and therefore improving your health. More so than if you went to water. Hmm. So yeah, that's that's the lowdown on sweeteners, and I get really frustrated where people just, you know, they say that I'm saying something that I'm not, or they're saying, oh, you know, you can't say it's completely safe. I'm not saying it's completely safe. What I'm saying is that human evidence we have today does not validate any concern or any serious concern in humans, right? And it's not due to a lack of data. We have we have a lot of data. We have many. You know, aspartame has been around for 30, 40 years. Yeah, we have we have several decades worth of human research showing that if there was something serious by now, we would have found it 100 percent, 100 percent. Makes so sense. you have to understand there's a difference between not having evidence and having data that doesn't align with the claims that are being made. Right. Right. Yeah? So if I said to you, if so, if I said to you, there there will never be a talking tree, yeah? Mm -hmm. We do not have the evidence to say that there is a talking tree. That is something different because we haven't done studies that are assessing all the different types of trees and whether they can talk or not, yeah? yeah. That, is a lack of, that is a lack of data. So we don't actually know. We can only hypothesize. But when it comes to sweeteners, we have the data, so that's why we can confidently say that there are no serious side effects at present. So that's the difference when people argue, oh, well, just because there's no evidence now doesn't mean there won't be in the future. You're, you're missing the point that we have plenty of research. And what the research is showing, no serious or no high associations between adverse health effects and sweetened uh, drinks. Wow. That was, that was a lot of information. I love that. <laughs> so I did, say, I, I did say that I can't give you a two sentence answer, right? I can't, I can't. <laughs> yes, no, definitely take advantage of the, of the longer platform. I think, uh, I know a lot of people they'll, they'll put on my podcast on their drive to work. And so they'll, they'll definitely listen exactly. to the whole story. Thought that came up in my head was I never thought of this, but I think you mentioned if, if like we replaced all the sugars or refined sugars, stuff like that with sweeteners, we would see like obesity rates and, and a lot of things come down. Um, you know, I, I think that's actually such a good, I feel like businesses would be so scared to do that though. Like I, f I feel like they understand how much like risk there is with people thinking, uh, you know, those side effects that the artificial sweeteners might have. And, uh, and, and that, that might be like a reason why they, they wouldn't want to do it. But well, the thing is, you know, you, this is a, this is a whole nother conversation, which we can have another time, but yeah. you know, when you, when you look at the food environment and the main, you know, food manufacturers and drink manufacturers that have sugary drinks, 
you know, they are acknowledging that people do want alternatives and that there is a market for alternatives. So pretty much every major, you know, sugary brand has zero calorie sweetened right. options, right? right. Um, and I think with the education that is happening at present, um, the food environment is perhaps moving towards that way. But, you know, sugary sweetened beverages and, you know, highly refined processed foods they have such a pivotal role in the food environment. They have such an important role that we won't, I don't think we will see a complete cutoff anytime soon. There are so many political, you know, economical mm -hmm. things at play, you know, food um, calorie scarcity, food quality scarcity, you know, uh, accessibility to healthy options, uh, food poverty. There's so many things at play where there's no simple solution. But I do think that with the dissemination of information like we are doing now, we can start to encourage people that, you know, it's it's okay to go down the artificially sweetened route. And it is a viable option if you do want to do that. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, thanks so much for that. That was that was a lot of good information. I'm sure people who listen to this, I feel like almost like more than half of the people will have that stigma around artificial sweeteners. So it's good that this information is being spreaded now. Yeah. Now, into the next juicy, juicy topic. Okay. Cholesterol. The, the funniest video I've seen in the past few days was when I was scrolling through TikTok and that uh, footage of Liver King came, come up. And then we have, <laughs> obviously, you got Dr. Is on the side, like always. And then uh, we got Liver King in the back saying, I don't believe in cholesterol. I don't believe in that shit. Um, can, you <laughs> can you tell us cholesterol? Why? Uh, actually, you know what? I, I want to get into it in a way where you hear so many people say, don't eat more than one or two eggs a day. Um, mm. And then I know you had a video on that as well, where you mentioned that, uh, you know, it probably, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it increases the, uh, the uh, LDL and HDL, um, and then the ratio stays the same. Um, we can talk a about cholesterol, but I also wanted to ask if, is it only the ratio that matters, or does it matter if they're, the, the how high uh, the, those numbers are oh boy okay oh, wow. <laughs> this is okay i i am i am wary of time but okay so let's see how i can <laughs> best some best try and this is a very good is very it? good question very good question <laughs> okay all right simply speaking okay ldl ldl cholesterol okay is an independent causal factor in increases in cardiovascular disease and heart disease and things that impact our arteries and our hearts okay it's when i say independent this is a very key point now that even though we there have been over if you look at the european atherosclerosis society consensus panel they're made up of world-leading experts on heart disease right in 2017 they they released their consensus panel message right which essentially goes like this, and I would I would 100% agree, and this is what's been with my research as well, that there are so many converging lines of different analyses, different demographics, different populations, different types of research, you know, observational research, prospective, retrospective, randomized control trials, over 200, I think, cohort studies, over several dozen, you know, randomized control trials that look at whether you lower LDL via medication and what happens to their heart disease risk later on, right? Mm. All of these converging lines of evidence show and they summarize that LDL cholesterol mm. does play, if LDL cholesterol goes up independent of anything else going on, yeah, independent of HDL, that your risk of heart disease goes up and it plays a causal role, not just association, it plays a causal factor in heart disease mm. and atherosclerosis, mm. okay? That's the first thing I'll say. Now, if you look at, there's also something called Mendelian randomization and genetic studies that look at people that have genetic predisposition to having high cholesterol levels, right? Those genetic variances also align with the converging lines of evidence as well. So 
when people say that cholesterol does not have an impact, they're they're talking out their ass, quite 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 frankly. And Liver King does not does not know what he's on about, and he's only he's only trying to um, preserve his monetary incentives and his business, right. which is okay. Any good marketer would do that. That's fine. Right. But when it comes to science and research, he's not the person to listen to. Yeah. So cholesterol now. There are many different types of blood lipids, right? Triglycerides, you know, total cholesterol. You got LDL, you got HDL, you got the TG ratio. You've got you know all different kinds of ratios, and people are even looking at you know the very small particle sizes and very large particle sizes, right? Um, very low LDL and very tiny ones as well. Essentially, it gets it gets very very complicated, but. The key thing that we know from nutritional research is that our diet does play an influential role on what happens to our blood lipids. Okay, mm-hmm. and what you mentioned about um, eggs—eggs eggs is probably one of the most talked-about topics when it comes to cholesterol and fitness, right? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. people love eggs; they're a very good protein source. They're a very staple morning protein source, right? And but then obviously fitness influences and people are worried about what happens to risk of heart disease. Right. Now, when you look at the meta-analyses of randomized control trials, it shows that yes, dietary cholesterol, so eggs do contain dietary cholesterol. We know now that dietary cholesterol doesn't have that much of an impact on our blood lipids as other things like saturated fats, like unsaturated fats, like trans and saturated fatty acids they're the things that are the most influential on our on on our cholesterol levels but dietary cholesterol does have a small impact and in a subgroup of the population we are something called hyper responders or people that are they're hyper responsive to dietary cholesterol so there's a subgroup of people that do massively change their cholesterol levels based on how much dietary cholesterol they eat okay so that's the next thing I'll say. Now, when it comes to eggs, eggs do have an impact in our total blood lipid profile, our total cholesterol profile. But when you look at the outcome data, so not the mechanism, but when you look at the outcome data that looks at egg consumption with heart disease or after, or um, you know stroke or cardiovascular events, there doesn't seem to be an association there. So even though egg consumption does impact our blood lipids it because of perhaps other nutrients because it's very rich in different minerals and vitamins mm-hmm. in high protein intake it might play a role in helping people you know uh reduce their risk of obesity uh, managing their weight because of all of these mechanisms happening alongside egg consumption there seems to be the mitigated effect on heart disease risk okay so that just shows you how complicated something like cardiovascular disease is, is that you can't just look at the effects on one thing and then say that it has worsening outcomes for your heart because you don't just consume dietary cholesterol in isolation. Yeah, mm-hmm. You consume foods in the, the food matrice or the food matrix that we call it. And the interesting thing about nutrition is it's very hard to underpin the exact effect of a single nutrient because within food, you don't just have a single nutrient. Right. You don't consume food in isolation. You have to take into account the effects of all the other nutrients in that food. So egg is one of those things that appears to be, generally speaking, protective against disease and not harmful because of everything going on within the egg. Thank God. So, yeah, 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 yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> generally speaking, you you know, the average person does not need to worry. But if your doctor has noticed that you might be genetically predisposed to having high levels of cholesterol, mm-hmm. you might be a hyper responder to dietary cholesterol, then, you know, based on your own personal medical advice, it might be wise to reduce your egg consumption. Yeah? So some okay. simple strategies might be... Um, Instead of having a full egg omelet, a full whole egg omelet in the morning, why don't you have two egg whites and two whole eggs? Yeah, yeah. You 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 will barely recognize the difference in taste, to be honest. 
um, because you know just one just one whole egg will will give you that kind of creamy texture anyway. Right. Um, right. But yeah, so that's that's some of the nuance behind egg cholesterol, heart disease. You know, all of the different lines of merging evidence looking at heart disease risk. So just to summarize. Our blood lipids do play a role in our heart disease risk. Don't tell, don't listen to anyone that tells you otherwise. Yeah, cholesterol is not a myth. LDL is not a myth. Yeah, it's a very that it's one of the main reasons. It's one of the main markers or investigations that doctors do when we look at someone's risk of metabolic uh, syndrome or metabolic disease, because the liver plays a very crucial role with how we, you know. Um, in, in our insulin resistance, in our visceral fat adipose tissue, in our sensitivity, in our breakdown of byproducts, in our metabolization of different nutrients, um, it even, you know, vitamin K, clotting factors, loads of different things, right? So don't listen to anyone that tells you blood lipids don't make a difference. Obviously, inflammation, CRP, you know, insulin sensitivity, um, obesity, excess adipose tissue, inflammatory cytokines, all of these play also crucial roles in our disease risk. But that does not mean that blood lipids have no role. Okay, so that's probably what I'd like to finish that topic on is, you know, just be wary of people making unsubstantiated claims that go against world experts. I'm talking not just one world expert. You've got a consensus panel that are literally, you know, they're the ones that right. influence what happens with medical care and all, all that kind of stuff. Can can I conclude? Can I conclude that choosing a healthier fat source has less uh, has less effect on LDL and and cholesterol? You know, cho no, no, choosing healthier fat sources will have a more beneficial effect. Right, uh, right, more our, beneficial. Yeah, because our saturated fats and our mono and polyunsaturated fatty acids changing the proportion of. Uh, types of fat in our diet will have the biggest role on our on our cholesterol levels. Our dietary cholesterol has a much smaller role. So don't you don't need to look at dietary cholesterol too much. You need to look at am I having any trans-saturated fatty acids, any saturated fatty acids? Am I having enough healthy omega-3s, omega-6s, mono, polyunsaturated fatty acids? Am I having, you know, why don't I drizzle some extra virgin olive oil on top of my salad? Why don't I decrease um, the amount of fat in my steak that I'm having today or whatever? So, yeah, yeah that's I mean, probably the, thing, that's the single biggest thing we can do to improve our blood cholesterol levels. I love to hear that. I love eggs. I want to say, so then what would you say about the guys uh, on the Internet, like TikTok, whatnot, that you're grabbing a stick of butter and they're just eating it because butter is not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, okay. Dairy and heart disease is a is a completely different topic. Oh shoot! <laughs> and it's also very complicated because of once again the nutrients don't live in isolation, right. right? So even though dairy products do contain saturated fats, yeah, the overwhelming amount of evidence shows that dairy consumption does not increase your risk of cardiovascular diseases. Mm. It might even have a protective effect on cardiovascular disease risk. And that's because of, you know, it, there's some mechanisms to do with um, the bioavailability of calcium and how it can, it can take away different plaque structures and it can reduce the amount of atherosclerosis that happens and also the positive effects on inflammatory mediators, inflammatory cytokines. There's a meta-analysis of dozens of studies looking at dairy and its effect on interleukin-3, interleukin-6, uh, high sensitivity CRP, tumor necrosis factor alpha. Generally speaking, dairy products have an anti-inflammatory effect on our body, right? So if you're reducing inflammation, then that's also one mechanism by which heart disease occurs. So that's why it's so complicated to just say, oh, but dairy contains saturated fat, so surely that's going to be bad for my heart. Mm. Yeah, you can't say that. But, you know, just to summarize, I will say it's probably not a good idea to just be, you know, munching on blocks of butter just every day. You know, I don't yeah. think that's wise yeah. for anyone really. Like, just, yeah. I, for, like for a fact, your LDL is going 
just completely be dysregulated. Yeah. I, I think following Dr. Ids is one of the best things that happened to me. Like you, <laughs> you, you, you start realizing that everything is so complicated. There's just so many sides of, of, of every single thing that you wouldn't think about because I guess what we like to do as humans, we'll hear one thing and then we'll connect it to everything else. Um, yes. Yeah, so no, definitely. If, you, if you're not following Dr. Ids, this is probably like the best thing you can do. <laughs> I, um, I know we're running out of time. Um, is 10 minutes uh, okay for you? 10, 10, 10 more minutes? Yeah, go on then. Yeah, 10 minutes is fine. Yeah. Sure, because uh, I want to talk about ectosteroids, and I know it can be a pretty complicated topic as well, so I was hoping that we can do it in 10 minutes. Um, and the reason why I wanted to talk about ectosteroids is because it's been a very popular topic on social media, especially on TikTok, where um, people have a lot of influence and they'll talk about ectosteroids and how much benefit it gives them. Um, and I've done a, just like a little bit of research myself, and I find that, you know, ectosteroids probably don't work. Um, but then you get people like Greg Doucette. Uh, I don't know if you know Gre Greg Doucette. He's a very, obviously a very influential fitness influencer um, that is selling ectosteroids or like Ryan Schmidl. Um, and so I think the video that I saw, correct me if I'm wrong, and if the video that I saw you made uh, was that ectosteroids probably don't have an effect because human receptors don't bind to plant uh, steroids uh, and whatnot. Yeah. So good. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good talking point. Um, you know, me, me and Greg have had a couple run-ins very early on uh, <laughs> in my TikTok career. Actually, he actually had me on one of his episodes of uh, what was it? TikTok reviewing, you know, stupid things I found on TikTok or whatever. And uh -huh. he actually attempted to call me out. And um, <laughs> I. I basically, I basically said, just you don't want to play this game. And it's just, it's just oh not my goodness! Um, but anyway, we had a bit of back and forth. This was literally probably fourteen, fifteen months ago now, a long time ago. Can I find this on on YouTube or something? Yeah, I think he'll he'll still have the video back then. If you look at his TikTok series, he basically responded to one of my really early videos where I said, "Stop telling people that a calorie is a calorie." Right, mm. and he basically strawmanned the argument and said, "Oh, but a calorie is a calorie." I said, "I said, stop telling people a calorie. I'm not saying that they're not all equal. It literally it's 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 a measure of of energy. All I'm saying is that different calories have different effects on the body. That's, that's literally all I'm saying. But anyway, then we had a bit of back and forth. And so I feel, you know, me and Greg don't really see eye to eye, and I, I know I have seen that he does um, push." uh unscientific things and when you really when you really try to get him to discuss the science it's clear that he doesn't really know much um mm. which is fine you know once again he's a marketeer like like uh liver king is as well but mm. that's fine like i i wouldn't engage in long conversations with him because you know the thing i like saying is uh i like saying it's like playing chess with a pigeon yeah you know you can make you can come up with the best the best master plan and you can have the best move in the world. But then when it's the it's pigeon's turn, the, yeah, the pigeon will just strut around and knock a few pieces over and think it's one. So it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't matter what you say or how you present it, right? So ignoring that, let's talk about ectosteroids, ectosterone, terkesterone, right? Now, the, the reason why it's gained a lot of traction, I think, in the past couple of years is because this study in 2019 by Eisenman or Edward Eisenman, right? This study is an isolated study that basically took, I think, I think it was maybe 46 people. And I think it maybe was an eight to 10 week program where they supplemented with uh, one of the ectosteroids, I can't remember which one. But basically they found that there was an increase in, you know, hypertrophy outcomes, strength outcomes, right? And the way in which they discussed the mechanisms was very kind of airy-fairy and not really going into the nuance. And if we look back now before 2019, and we look at a study in 06 by, I think, Colin um, et al. in 06 that looked at um, athletes and they looked at sprint mm -hmm. peak performance and hypertrophy outcomes and androgen levels and 
uh, different hormonal outcomes. They found that eight weeks of soft supplementation made no difference to any of them. Mm. Okay, and as you said, you know, the the plant steroids, the the ECD part of the word comes from. I think it's something to do with you know insect growth factors and how it's like it works with the plants specifically. Basically, there's lots of studies looking at animal models and plant models where it does show that there's a effect on um, some of the processes of molting in the insects, and that's called ecdesis um, or something. Mm. So essentially, when people try to attribute the effects that we see in animal models and plant models to human evidence, you then are crossing a line that's not substantiated because there's conflicting evidence in human research. There's only one human study that shows any improved outcomes, right? Mm. And you've got to be very, very careful hanging your hat on one study. You can't do that, especially mm. when there's previous research, which might be a bit less biased. That's hard to say. I, I can't say for sure. When there's previous research going against those results. So to summarize, you know, what I like to think is a lot of these anecdotal uh, claims that people have made are oh, my bench went up by, you know, 20 kilograms or my deadlift went up so big when I started taking, you know, terkesterone. Um, you know, what I'll, what I'll say is that placebo is a very strong thing. Mm. It's very, very strong. It's well documented in dozens of studies showing a placebo pill. If you think it will, it will work for you, boy, it's going to work. Your strength is going to increase. Your speed is going to increase. Your hormone levels can also increase because the brain is so powerful. Yeah. Interesting. If you believe it, it, it'll work. So whilst I'm not, I don't like to invalidate people's personal experiences you know, if you got stronger, you got stronger. You can't, you know, you can't argue with that. Yes. My issue is, is that if you're saying that it's because of the supplement mm. you're taking, or if you think that you've perfectly controlled your life for two months and everything has stayed the same, right, and right. all your blood markers have stayed the same, you know, if you think that you've done that and the only thing you've changed is taking this supplement, then I'm sorry, but you don't understand how research works. There's a reason we have research studies. Because anecdotal evidence makes no difference, right? Yeah. So I'm not saying that you can't have an improvement in your strength and in your gains taking that supplement. What I'm saying is we can't say that that improvement is due to the thing you're taking. We have to look at other factors in your life. We have to look at the placebo effects, yeah? And that's why we do double-blinded randomized control trials where you give half of the people an actual placebo and the other people don't know whether they're taking it or not, mm. right? So that's, that's the best way. That is, so in all you know, top quality uh, pharmaceutical supplement studies, you have to do a double-blinded trial because otherwise you, you, you don't know whether it's from placebo or not, right? You know, when you tell someone, if I gave you this uh, a magic pill or I gave you this drink and I said, this little portion of squash will increase your testosterone. It will make you, you know, go up a plate in your deadlift. It will give you 20 kilograms on your bench. And I said, see what happens over six weeks. Yeah. You're going to go out there. You're going to train super hard knowing you're taking some super soldier serum. Yeah. <laughs> but little did you know, it's a, it's a bit of squash in a bottle. Yeah. It's not going to, it's not going to do anything. Yeah. It's so but, interesting to hear, to learn how powerful placebo is and how powerful your brain is. I had no idea. And, 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 and I want to say like one of the possibilities could be that, you know, uh, in terms of holding every variable constant is if, if for me, when I buy a new supplement, I get so much more motivated to work out and try and and try and transition my diet to a better high protein diet. And yeah. so that, that, I guess that also, you know, plays a part in why you're seeing more results, you know, with that yes. steroids and whatnot. And you know, you know, the other, the other interesting thing is, is that when we buy something that has value, right? Say we bought a supplement that was £2.99. Yeah. Yeah. But it was the same supplement as if it was £100. Uh -huh. Yeah. When you've spent a hundred pounds of your hard-earned money, and you're <laughs> taking something, 
yeah, right. yeah. you have an even greater motivation to make the yeah. supplement work <laughs> right whereas yeah. if you bought something for two pounds you take it for a week and you're like oh it's not it's not doing anything there's right. no point i'll just i'll just leave it yeah yeah you yeah. don't have that same psychological motivation where you actually want the thing to work so bad that you make it work uh-huh so I, so I think the way that they've priced these supplements as being pretty expensive is very smart. It's very, <laughs> it's, it's just top quality marketing right there. Because when you buy something that is expensive, we have a preconceived notion that that thing is valuable. Right, right. right. It's valuable and it holds value and quality. That's why designer brands are so many thousands and, you know, undesigner brands of clothes are just very cheap. Yeah. You're buying it expensively because you think it's quality the same thing happens with our brain so we buy something and it's a hundred pounds and you really want it to work and you're going to put all of your effort into making it work you're more likely to have uh, positive effects in the gym that's just that's just how it works so that's why you see people you know i know ryan used to he used to i think he still does sell it now or whatever um me and ryan are, are we're on good terms it's all good um people like greg and other people you know um, they also sell it, but to put it bluntly, it's not based on any sound human research. You know, there's no viable mechanism by which it would work anyway. Um, so when you're lacking the mechanism and you're lacking the outcomes, and then you make a claim that doesn't hold up in the in the light of scientific evidence, you know, mm. you, there is an argument that if you have outcome data, but you don't have a valid mechanism or a established mechanism in human cells or whatever then you could argue that it's still okay because outcome data matters more than mechanisms right, right. but if you have neither one of them then you can't you know there's there's conflicting outcome data and there's no viable mechanism so there's no way in my mind i, w I would ever you know i wouldn't have the scientific um you know, I have scientific responsibility to my audience, right? I'm only I'm only going to encourage and advise people based on science. So at the moment, that the science just isn't there. So that's all I can say. Now, now Doctor Ed, now I'm too smart to miss out on placebo gains. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh no! No, no. Actually, interestingly, um, even if you know that something is a placebo, it yeah. it can still help. Interesting. And yeah, it's very weird. I'm not quite sure how it works, but there's a lot of evidence showing that even if you tell the group that it's a placebo pill, they huh. they still they still benefit. So, wow. yeah, psychology. I haven't, I haven't I haven't killed all your games yet. Don't worry. Thanks. <laughs> 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 so anyway, we just hit the an hour mark. I don't want to keep you for too long. I know you got a really busy day ahead of you. Um, and I do want. Yeah, I do want to say that, you know, my I, I want to say my main goal really is to try and spread information and actually help people. And I know there's it was a video I made and a lot of people tagged you in it. And then we get the doctor, it's coming. Oh. This is not how it works. That was funny. Uh, but I, I want to say, you know, feel free to literally, you know, comment if anybody ever tags or you come across it and it's not the information, I, the information I spread is not correct, that please feel free to to comment and, and let me know because I, I, I personally really want to spread the truth yeah and I, and I can see that honestly thank you i think uh i think what what you're doing is is um very valuable to the community because you know fitness podcasts in general are very heavily you know rooted in misinformation and pseudoscience mm. so i think i think having a genuine um approach where you're okay to be questioned and okay to be you know conversing with people that perhaps might be a bit more informed on a specific topic. I think that shows that you genuinely want to help. And I think, you know, the, the caliber of people you're having on as well is also a very good sign. So I think, yeah, keep it up. And this is a very good thing you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I, I love to learn. I, I like to try and be a sponge and absorb all the information I can. Um, and I think, I guess I, I, I want to try and be more critical now um, because of the complexity of certain topics. And I think it's it's important to think about what I actually hear and what I actually absorb. So uh, thanks so much for, for coming on to the show again today. Um, is there any last uh, last words you kind of want to tell the audience? Yeah, I think just a nice just a nice thing to finish on is, you know, in the fitness, health, nutrition space, 
you know, if someone is making a claim, yeah, and they don't provide evidence for it, and when you ask them, they resort to personal insults, ad hominems, they hesitate from citing mm. their sources. Um, these are all very big red flags, and you've got to take these people mm. with a pinch of salt. Because, you know, either it's an arrogance issue, either it's a, you know, it's a issue of not being able to appropriately critique evidence or the science, or perhaps that whatever they're saying is purely rooted in misinformation. You need to be careful and be analytical and critical with how and who you absorb information from, right? So, by, like, I'm not saying everyone needs to cite evidence in every video, all I'm saying is that when someone is questioned and when someone is asked to cite evidence, if they don't provide it and they resort to changing the subject, then just 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 be careful. You know, be careful and you know tag people in it and ask ask for people's opinions. You know, this is why I get tagged in 200 videos a day. You know, I mm. can't respond to everyone, but right. I do try to look at trends and I do try to help people out, and that's a lot of the reason why I choose the videos that I choose. And I choose them because, you know, people are confused and they, they genuinely want to know the science behind it. So mm. I think that's probably the, just the last thing I'll say. I'll say just always don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask for evidence. And, you know, be skeptical by people that make claims that aren't substantiated. Mm. That's all I'll Thanks say. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. This is probably the the, the most informative, informative and educational episode I've had uh, so far. And I would love to have the chance i know you're busy but in the future at all i'd love to have a chance to chat with you again because i'd love to learn from you for sure my friend for sure sometime in the future thank you so that wraps up episode 14 of jim Brill talks today thanks again for sticking around for the episode today's episode is by far the most informative episode we've have on the show so i want to give a big thanks again to dr it's for taking the time and coming on here Thanks again for sticking around. I will see you guys in the next episode. Have a good rest of your day.